Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Serapia. Welcome to Profile. Cindy Woodhouse-Nipanak has spent her entire career in First Nations politics. Beginning as an advisor to former National Chief Sean Atlio, she eventually became the Assembly of First Nations Regional Chief for Manitoba. Now, during that time, she was the AFN's lead negotiator in its class action lawsuit against the federal government, fighting for First Nations children harmed by the child welfare system. Woodhouse Nipanak helped secure a $23 billion settlement for First Nations survivors and their families. And last fall, Woodhouse Nipanak put her name forward to lead the AFN, Canada's largest First Nations advocacy organization. In December, she earned the top spot, becoming just the second woman to lead the AFN. But it was her upbringing and immersion in First Nations governance from a young age that kicked off decades of fighting for Indigenous rights. You know, I want to begin with your own life story because without a doubt, you, your, your, your experience with First Nations advocacy runs deep. Uh, not only having studied to, to be an advocate in university, but, but growing up, within the milieu, your, your father being the chief of your First Nation, uh, he would take you to national meetings when you were only a child. Can you talk to us about that? What was that like for you? How formative was that for you as a child? I've been very um, thankful and I've had the opportunity in my life to listen to the voices of First Nations leaders, First Nations men and women, First Nations elders, and of course growing up with young people in my community being able to hear diverse views of First Nations across the country throughout my whole life, and particularly from my dad when he would um, drag me to meetings all the time. I always think that that's so important for all of us to do with our kids, is to bring them to places and bring them to your workplace because they should see what, what you're doing and how you're doing it. You know, my parents had very tough upbringings, but I know that they always wanted me to come along with them, and, and I'm glad that I was able to see that and, and hear um, those voices of all those people, those statements from our people, so many powerful people growing up that I had the pleasure of being, being able to hear speak, whether that was uh, protesting somewhere or, uh, you know, being in a meeting somewhere and we're talking about our rights. Uh, university will never give me that, what I had from our own people. Mm -hmm. Well, and you were born in the 80s, and so you would have been, what, seven or eight years old when the Oka protest was happening, when the protest at Cloyacot Sound was happening. It made me think about seminal moments in our own lives, and what were the seminal moments in your life that, that helped you decide, I want to dedicate my life to advocating for the First Nations and Indigenous people in this country? I don't know if I had a, ch a choice. I don't know if that's fair to say that, but I... I think, you know, you, you, you grow up as a First Nations girl on a First Nations community and we come off of that community and you see the disparities that exist and how we're left out of the Canadian economy, uh, how there's housing gaps and access to housing and all these little things that maybe Canadians take for granted that, you know, their access to good schools, to good infrastructure. And you come off of your community when you turn 18 and you kind of wonder, how come we never had that? or basic things like having access to a cell phone or, or good internet. And our communities have uh, struggled to get those, that basic infrastructure in many times. It, you come off and I don't think we have a choice as First Nations people. We should be um, speaking for ourselves in, in a good way to build those relationships, but also 
um, to make sure that we're advocating to try and improve the quality of life of all people, whether they're on or off reserve. And you know, when you talk about not having a choice, part of it is because your, your, your own family history runs deep in the relationship with the Crown. Can you talk to us about that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, my grandfather is Chief Richard Woodhouse, my great-great-great-grandfather, my ancestor. Uh, on August 21st of 1871, he had signed the treaty with the, with the Crown back in the 1800s. Um, I always honor that relationship because it's, it, you know, the, the stories that I've been brought up with is that we're to share the land, we're to share the resources and to take what's best from each other and make a, a, this country great. And that was really only the first step because then you go on to work with uh, two former AFN chiefs, both uh, Sean Atlio and Perry Bellegarde. How important were they in coming to the decision for you to run for the AFN chief yourself? I think I always thought that I'd um, work in the background, but I, you know, at the same time, I've seen two different, two different ways, two different styles of leadership. They both had their, their strengths. And at the same time, I think um, former National Chief Sean Atlio was very tough on him. He was, it was a different government that was at a time when First Nations are pushing for change and there's, they still continue to push for change today. Um, you know, and then sometimes the, Progress isn't as fast as we would like, and I think he, he may have been, you know, watching that in that moment. Um, I seen how difficult it was for him dealing with a certain government at that time, but he did get some wins on health, for you know, for BC, for BC First Nations, and and but seeing that change in the in the smile on his face when those things happened, or you know, working for Perry Bellegarde and seeing different, you know, the Indigenous Languages Act, for instance, come through the House of Commons or giving tools on child welfare to First Nations, um, seeing the progress on his face on that, or watching Phil Fontaine in Rome, uh, you know, when, when the Pope had apologized, and the, I had to look at him in, in, in the audience in that moment, um, you know, when the Pope apologized, looking at him, thinking, this is a man that worked on that issue for 40 years. So these jobs aren't, aren't easy, but at the same time, uh, when you get progress and you get a win, I think that that's a good thing. And yet you make this decision and you come to the organization as chief after what is a tumultuous time and from someone looking from the outside what seemed to be a very toxic time for the organization. A lot of people would have been dissuaded from running for national chief, but you weren't. Why? Well, there's child and family services and I have to you know, uplift also the previous, uh, the previous national chief. She had given us you know, leeway to start giving me leeway at to start working on child and family services, to take it, run with it, and get the work done on that. And I lift to all the people that um, came before me that worked on that issue uh, in a big way because without them, we wouldn't have been here. And I know that I was just at the end of that, uh, securing the, the finances for that, working with the prime minister in his office to make sure that we roll that out in a good way. I lift him up for that. Uh, you know, it's, it's a big number, but it's also a big issue in this country. And I think in that moment, uh, I'm glad that, that he responded that day, because I think we would have been back in court again had, we, had he not. So as you say, a win, but again, a tumultuous time for the organization. Absolutely. And I do want to talk about that, because you know you, your predecessor did accuse staff members at the AFN of being corrupt, being abusive. Uh, she also said that she faced backlash for promising to carry out a forensic audit of the organization, how it spent money and how it operated you know, going back many years. 
What do you make of those allegations that, were, that we heard from Roseanne Archibald? Well, you know, certainly there's a chief's committee now looking at everything. Uh, I know that we were told by chiefs as national chief and regional chiefs to um, stay out of that and to make sure that we let the chiefs do their work on any of that. But as far as I know, there's been 10 years of um, audits that have cleared. We have to keep, continue to work at Unity. It's very, uh, it's very easy to break down. It's very hard to build up, but we have to keep trying. When Cindy Woodhouse-Niepenak won the national chief election, she inherited a fractured AFN. Internally, the previous national chief, Roseanne Archibald, was pushed out. Externally, some members of the Indigenous community accused the AFN of, at best, being out of touch and, at worst, being too close to the federal government to advocate strongly on critical issues. I asked Woodhouse-Niepenak about those tensions and how she plans to regain trust both in and outside the AFN. So do you think then that Roseanne Archibald should have raised her concerns in a different way? If, if unity is more important, is there a way she could have raised her concerns? From your point of view, that would have been perhaps more constructive as, a, as opposed to being as divisive as it was. I, I can't speak for anybody else and I don't know um, what happened within the organization at that moment. I know that I was just on, uh, you know, there was, I wasn't in, in as, as staff at that point. I just know that with, uh, our leader, with my leadership, I'd like to continue moving the issues forward. There's a lot of issues at hand here. We have a federal budget coming up. And I think that when we focus on children, that brings us together in a good way. And I want to focus my leadership on, on children, chil First Nations children's issues. I've ran on that, uh, you know, in this last election. And I think that that's why the Chiefs had elected me, was to continue to speak up for our kids. They're, they're our future. Is that how you rebuild trust then, you know, given the, the attention given the AFN, perhaps not in the light that you would like it to, is that how you rebuild trust by focusing on an issue like that? I think if we focus on the issues and remembering that there's First Nations communities out there that are screaming for help, that are facing uh, just difficult situations, particularly after COVID, we, we see a, a crisis in Ontario where there's a suicide crisis and an epidemic. We see record numbers of overdoses. We see all these things happening around us. If we focus on finding solutions and building on that, we should have no time to, to fight or bicker. We have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of um, solutions that we need to bring to the table and, and I can't do it alone. I'm going to need this, the, the people, First Nations people of this country, the leadership, the elders and our young people to help and, and uh, including um, the regional chiefs and the chiefs themselves to, um, to all work together. We have to work together and to help each other. There's many differences in every single community. Every, everybody has their own way of life, but at the same time, there's many common issues that we all face together, and like the Indian Act or the fact that reconciliation isn't moving as fast as we would like. I'll pick up on that in a moment, but you know, as, as you talk about this, of course, here you are leading the organization, but in I, I, I know you're aware of this. The AFN itself has been criticized by, by some Indigenous youth in particular who, who believe it's too close to the government. You've been criticized for, 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 for uh, being arguably too close to the government, having uh, led the, the, the Liberal Party's Indigenous Peoples Commission at one point, also being involved in a, in a campaign for the Liberal Party. Are you too close to this government to actually affect change? Listen, I think that uh I come from a province that's been probably one of the most 
considered one of the most racist in this country, right? And we've elected a First Nations Premier, who's an NDP Premier, and I lift him up in a good way. I've also, uh, I also have to uplift all of our young people and our people who are in all political parties in this country. I believe that our voices matter, whether it's in the Conservative Party or the Green Party or the Bloc Quebecois. And we do have some sovereignists as well that don't believe in any of those systems. All of those voices matter and we all have to work together to find a way to make change for our people. And I'll continue to do that. We have to build relationships with all parties, which I have done in even the last couple of months since being elected, making sure that I reached out to the Prime Minister, making sure that I reached out that, uh, you know, speaking to Pierre, speaking to Jagmeet Singh, you know, the, the members opposite. and. Uh, you know, I'm, I know that there's a couple of other parties. I've also met Elizabeth May um, some months ago. There's a lot of people that we have to, to work with. And if we can be in, if our people can be in every single political party and every single table that's making decisions about our people, I think that that's a win for all of us. Mm -hmm. Do you need to be more adversarial though? I, you know, because I, I wonder how you would describe your own style, how you think that's effective. Because again, the critics of the AFN uh, believe that it should be more adversarial to affect change. And, some, and sometimes we will, and sometimes we do. I mean, I wasn't happy um, at the beginning of this week when there's a cabinet retreat and there's not a lot of mention of First Nations people at the end of that. At the same time, I want to try and open those doors to say we, are, we need to make change here. At this, and when you look at fall economic statements, for instance, this last fall, and there wasn't a lot written about First Nations people, but there's 17 pages of other countries around the world. Absolutely, we're getting impatient. We want change. And I know that we, um, you know, we can always, always criticize. And I, I don't want to always be one of those leaders that always criticizes people. I do want to, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt that they're at the table to work with us. First Nations expect that, and First Nations expect open doors and good relations from their national leader. When Woodhouse Nipanak sought the AFN leadership, she made several promises on issues like First Nations children, policing, public safety, and Indigenous rights and economic reconciliation. So as she begins her term as national chief, I asked her what she wants to prioritize and how she plans to move forward on her commitments. Let's talk about the priorities that you have set for yourself. You, you set out five pillars during your campaign. Let's go through them one by one, beginning with First Nations children. You helped negotiate the $23 billion compensation package for children who were in care. What more do you want to accomplish on that front? What role do you see the AFN playing now? Well, there's still the long-term reform. That system has to be changed. Our experts need to come back to the table. There's still a really broken system out there. And we have lots of experts out there that can come together in a good way to fix it. And we have First Nations people that um, want to work in child welfare in a different way. What does that look like though? Because I think for, for, for Canadians who are, who are non-Indigenous, they, they can't wrap their head around what that's going to look like. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, I think First Nations um, want to take control of their own child welfare system. Currently, you know, governments are in charge and telling them and putting policies down the throats of our people. It's not working. There's more kids being taken into care all the time. There's um, limited support for First Nations parents. And we just need to make sure that we start building on infrastructure, making sure there's enough homes on First Nations communities, making sure that 
uh, you know, that there's opportunities for our people to stay in their communities. And I think that the more that we do that, we keep families together in a good way. We keep families whole and healthy. We keep them connected to their languages, to their culture and their way of life. Mm -hmm. Another pillar uh, has to do with housing and infrastructure. You, you mentioned it a little bit off top. Let's go in a bit more. What are you looking for? Because I think for, for many people, when they hear housing infrastructure, they stop at clean water, but it's more than that. It is more than that. Absolutely. Well, it's, you know, we need $350 billion investment on infrastructure and housing and good schools, just like everybody else in every city and town across this country. We want the same thing. We want good roads. When we invest in these things, it's better. It's better for our school buses, for instance, when you have good roads. And so those things, those basic things of, of life, we should be focused on and we should be putting in those investments. And another uh, necessity for you is policing and safety. Uh, what do you see there as happening? What do you need from government there? We need a reset. I know it's not going to be easy working with the provinces and the feds. We need trilateral table to start working um, through the policing and making policing an essential service. At the same time, it's tough on a Saturday night as regional chief in Manitoba when I was regional chief to get calls from different people in different communities saying that they need support in their, in their community because um, the police services that be maybe are not filling that gap as much as they could. And I think that you know, our people are looking for a new deal uh, on policing and as, as an essential service. We need support, we can't be left out anymore and uh, you know, we're looking to talk about that and yeah. we'd like to get to work. And to be clear, Indigenous self-policing is what you're looking at. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have to commend some of the police forces that we have. The statistics of them fatally hurting people is statistically lower than that of other police forces in this country. And so I think an investment in policing, it's, it's gonna go a long way for reconciliation and for uh, allowing us to govern ourselves. Mm -hmm. And the last pillar, uh, perhaps not surprising because it's a visible symbol for so many Canadians, the calls to action from both the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and from the uh, commission that looked into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. How do you see your organization and you moving that forward because as has been pointed out, the fulfillment of those calls to action have been slow. Absolutely, they've been slow. We're going up to five years in June, I think, of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women uh, inquiry. There hasn't been a lot of progress. I don't even wanna give you a number on it, but it's very low. It's disheartening to see that, particularly when we see out of Winnipeg this, you know, the, the horrific, uh, horrific scenes of different things that have happened there. I know we just came through a provincial election there where women are, even just a search for our women, it becomes a, a political issue. And you're talking about the Prairie Green Landfill. Prairie Green Landfill, yeah, absolutely. It becomes a political issue and it, it's disheartening that, that that had to be that. I think that if there was these recommendations were followed, you'd see a lot more people um, progressing. We need to make sure that all of our women have access to education, to schools, schools for their kids, uh, access to some place to live. We have all these Canadian conversations and uh, we continue to be left out of them. You know, like I said, the fall economic statement. And I just think that we could do a better job by working together rather than a hands down approach or a push down approach. Maybe listen to First Nations and we'll, we'll see real traction. So do you see your role as just 
highlighting the fact that it's not moving as quickly as First Nations people and Indigenous people would like? No, we have to, we have to get working on, on the, the calls to action. I do have to say, though, I do lift up the TRC, uh, that work that has been done. And I say this because being a young person, um, listening to the chiefs at that time, I remember Phil Fontaine was national chief. I was in a meeting with him and he sent pollsters across the country to ask what they thought of our people, what ask Canadians what they thought of First Nations people at that time. And it was very, very nil, very small of what they knew about our people. So I know that TRC is doing some of that work. Um, and how do I know that? Well, they've done pol polls again and it seems like more Canadians are aware of who we are. And I thank them. We have so many allies across this country from coast to coast to coast. We have to continue to build on the education to, to Canadians. We have to uh, build on the relationships with, with all Canadians. And is it going to, are we going to fix that in three years? Absolutely not. Are we going to try? Absolutely. It's been nearly 10 years since Justin Trudeau first became Prime Minister with a promise of a renewed nation-to-nation -nation relationship with Canada's Indigenous peoples. But given the challenges that Indigenous communities in this country still face, what does Woodhouse Nipanak think of the Prime Minister's words and actions? Now, the Prime Minister famously, when he first sent out the mandate letters for his first cabinet, said that there was no more important relationship for him, no more important relationship for this country than the relationship with Indigenous peoples. Here we are, eight years after the fact, going on nine years after stating that. What do you make of the Prime Minister's actions? What do you make of the Prime Minister's intentions? I gotta give him credit for the fiscal part of it. I know that they have invested fiscally, but at the same time, we still have outdated policies. We're still living under the Indian Act. I think as a, a leader, I wanna make sure that if there's things that we can fix very quickly, let's fix them. And if there's things that are more long-term, let's, let's focus on that. We have, to, we have to continue to push them, I think, in the right direction. It has to be a whole of government approach when they're dealing with us. And there's so many issues, pick one and, and let's fix it together. Mm -hmm. What do you identify as the, 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 the items that you can move on quickly right now? Well, number one, they can fix our membership code, for instance. There's this policy for First Nations that, uh, you know, s that want to eliminate us through, you know, through, through, um, through our membership. I think giving back our membership right to our First Nations communities, we can decide who we are. We know who we are. We know who our people are. And I think that's one policy that they could change very quickly. Now, I know there are people in this country, Indigenous, non-Indigenous, who, who believe the Prime Minister is less focused on the relationship now, that he, uh, it just is not top priority for him. Do you agree with that? I hope not. I mean, I want to give him the benefit of the, benefit of the doubt. I've been, I've been here for just two months. I'm going to um, reach out to his government very quickly. I know that his minister was in our office yesterday meeting with our chiefs. And I know that they're, they're looking to have a meeting with the Prime Minister and Cabinet this spring. And I'm hoping that that comes to fruition and that we can find some real tangible results together. Mm -hmm. Well, the Indigenous Services Minister, Patty Haidu, she, she, she has, of course, answered the criticism. People ask it of her. Uh, and essentially, she says, you know, a couple of things. One thing she, she says often is that colonialism will not be undone 
in a short amount of time. It is the work of generations. But she also says one positive thing to really point to is the fact that there is now a relationship, a working relationship. Do you agree with that? I agree with that. I, I, I remember being a young woman and um, when the doors were shut and there was no, these conversations are not easy on any, on any of these issues. Even on membership, we're probably as far away as uh, BC is to PEI on this issue. Uh, at the same time, um, we have to we have to have these hard conversations. You know, why should the government be telling me who who is treaty to my grandfather? And uh, you know, my children. I have, I'm a mother. I have three children. It's not the government's way to tell me who my children are. My children are Anishinaabe. They're treat. They're from Treaty Two territory. And for them to get out of the way on that, on membership, for instance, uh, absolutely. How do you judge a government, not just this government, but any government? How do you judge them as one who has worked on First Nations issues through her whole life to, to know, yes, this is a government we can work with? I think by listening to each other and by action. Action means more than words. We can sit there and say the nicest things over and over again, but really fixing them is, is going to be the answer and taking a lead from First Nations, allowing us to tell you how we're going to fix things on the child welfare, for instance, or, or on education. Um, we're, we're here and we're willing to work with any level of government. You see some governments in this country that work well with their First Nations people, even in the provinces, but they have to listen to us. And I think when it comes to um, even, you know, the, the federal, provincial, territorial meetings, that they don't kick us out the next day. They always have this little one hour cushy meeting the, the day before. And then the next day they kind of close the door and, and talk about $46 billion in, in healthcare funding, which was my experience last summer. That's disheartening. I think that all those attitudes have to change. And I know that things are changing slowly, very slowly in some cases. And final question, how do you judge yourself? How will you know that what your time with the AFN has been useful? Well, you can ask me that in three years. <laughs> and I think... You know, I think I want to judge myself that every day that I tried my best and that every day that I kept our children, my children, that maybe their life is just a little bit better in, in some way, in some policy uh, for our rights, that, that one community had more land somewhere or that they um, settled an old grievance with the feds. If every day we do all those little things, I think that that's maybe the public doesn't see it, but when those communities get their wins, that makes me very happy. That was my conversation with Assembly of First Nations National Chief, Cindy Woodhouse-Nipanak. I'm Michael Serapio, thank you for watching. We'll see you again on the next Profile, right here on CPAC. <laughs>